Thanks for plugging into this creative outlet. It's time for Architecture, Coffee, and Ink. Hello, this is Hollywood C, and you're listening to Architecture, Coffee, and Ink a podcast dedicated to introducing concepts, detailing out designs, and tackling the architecture you might not realize the meaning behind. I'm your hostess, and I'm here today to start introducing you to the designs that make you wonder why. So I ask you to brew your coffee, grab your sketchbook and pen, and let's begin. Hello, and welcome to the show, and welcome to all my designers, dreamers, and everyone in between. If this is your first episode or you've been with me from the beginning, I'm excited to have you here again in 2023. And I am so excited today to be sharing a conversation I had with Doug Shapiro, who many of my listeners might recognize as the host of Imaginal Place podcast. In addition, Doug is currently Vice President of Research and Insights at OFS, children's author, and recipient of the HIP Award in 2021, which is Interior Designs Honoring Industry People. Thank you so much, Doug, for joining me on the show. I am so excited to have you here today. Good, good. I'm doing great. And uh, as I mentioned, I'm just happy to be here with you. Uh, Since I've learned about your podcast, I've been able to dial into a few episodes. So I love what you're doing. I've listened to several of your episodes and my goddaughter absolutely loves your book. She has it. And I didn't realize it was you at first. That's awesome. That's super exciting. So would you mind just telling a little bit more about yourself and your history? I I know my listeners would love to hear your story. Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Doug Shapiro. I'm the VP of Research and Insights at OFS. And I've been with OFS for about 18 years and really started in the product design space. Mm -hmm. And what I kind of learned through product design, you know, when you engage in design, you always start with the context, right? Try to understand the context in which this object will sit. Well, I became way more interested in the context than the actual product, which kind of led me out of product design and more into some of the research and and work that I'm doing now. And uh, as part of that, you know, a lot of the research is more qualitative by nature. And it led me into the the world of conversation and uh, which eventually led me to this podcast, Imagine a Place. And that has been a true joy to to do over the last few years. Could you tell us a little bit more about Imagine a Place? I know that my listeners would love it and I've been listening to it off and on for a while now. So I'd love to hear more. Yeah. Thank you, Hollywood. So uh, it's been, we started in May or April of 2020 and we've got over a hundred episodes and it's a, it's a variety of interior designers, architects, of course. And then um, we also explore people outside or adjacent to the design mm-hmm. space. So we'll talk to, um, you know, end users will talk to change management experts, human resources, people, um, people that are just experts. I had a, someone, a, an expert on informational health, which is really interesting, mm-hmm. um, but it all ties back to design and then the impact that place has on us. But I ended up just like I did with product design, became more interested in the people sometimes than the actual uh, power of place. And so many of the episodes are actually very personal, you know, people mm-hmm. sharing stories and, and their their personal journey. So it's been fun, fun way to get to know the industry better. No, it's definitely inspirational as a, a thesis student. When I was listening to your episode, you were kind of playing in the background a couple of times. And it was just interesting to hear. It gave us a much more personal connection, I feel like, than a lot of our classes do because you learn from a textbook, you learn 
sharing as slides and examples. So it's very wonderful from a student perspective for all my student listeners who haven't listened to go tell your teachers to do it right now. That feels so good to hear. Thank you so much. When podcasting, because you're my first ever additional podcast host to be on the show with me. How do you like what type of lessons have you learned as you've gone through your journey? I'd love to hear more about your journey. I know most of my listeners know mine. It's been very sporadic and just been thesis driven. So it's interesting to now move past thesis and into an adult environment. I feel like I'm still a baby and still learning everything. Oh, I guess we'll always be feeling that way because I still feel that way, you know, after after 18 years. And and I'd love to turn that question around on you at some point and kind of oh, learn yeah. from you also. Uh, I, for me, one of the things I've picked up is where, where good communication comes from. Mm-hmm. And so I'll toss out three numbers to you. Okay. 55, 38, and seven. Okay. And so my advice would be to write those numbers down. It sounds like a high school locker code. It's <laughs> it's not, I promise you. But it's it's really the breakdown of communication. So the 55% of what you feel from me when we're communicating mm-hmm. is nonverbal. Mm-hmm. It's just how I present myself, right? Um, in a podcast, you really don't get that 55%, right? So you're left with the 38 and the seven. 38% mm-hmm. of what you feel for me is how I say what I'm saying. And then 7% is actually what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And what I found is the best guests that I have on my show are the ones that don't focus so much on what they're saying mm-hmm. and they just speak from the heart. And when they do that, their authenticity comes out, their passion comes out, and it ends up being a great episode, when I have people on that are just so calculated, they're just, you know, so concerned with saying the right thing, the the message never comes out. You know, people leave that episode early. And so that was something I kind of picked up on over time as I started looking at my metrics of how Mm -hmm. long people would stick around for certain episodes. So it allowed me to start to look for those people, like who speaks with passion, who lets it go. And uh, some of that is just honestly about letting go of your agenda and kind of Mm -hmm. trusting that you have good intentions and that those will surface, you know, and, and your, your message, whatever it is that you're trying to share will be felt. And I think that's, that is what ends up making for great communication. So I guess where I'm, where I'm taking this for you is if you've got listeners, it doesn't matter really where you're at in your profession, whether you're speaking to a client or you're doing mm-hmm. a job interview is to remember that 55, 38, seven. Cause if I, even if I said the word, thank you, or thanks, you could say, thanks or thanks. You know, it's like means totally different things. Uh, mm-hmm. So just uh, focus on that 38, how you say what you're saying. That's that's my advice or what I've picked up from, from being a host. Now, that's really interesting. I definitely realized when I did the same thing, looking back over the episodes, the episodes I was so concerned about, did I say that exact fact or that exact fact? And did I regurgitate that information? Nobody listened to them. I don't, I think they're my, my lowest episodes I ever have numbers wise. So it's crazy to think about. And it's definitely applicable, I feel like, to design as well. But I'm not sure about you, but I do feel like when you talk with clients and stuff, if you are honest and straightforward, it does come through a lot better than if you're like holding your little note cards in front of your face and trying to regurgitate exactly your retort. Totally. Uh, it does come through. And it also comes through in listening too. You know, like if you're if you're concerned about the next thing you're going to say, then, and I see this, like I'll listen to podcasts and then like a host will be so concerned about the next question, the guest will say something brilliant. 
right? And then uh, the host will just, uh, okay, on to the next question. I'm like, did you just hear that? That was amazing. <laughs> you know, you have to you have to respond. And uh, and I think the same thing happens too when you're communicating is uh, is to really let go of that agenda and listen, listen deeply. And, and then that'll trust, trust that you have good intentions and that you'll respond. See, we had to learn from the, I think it was the Art of Listening book, the Art of Listening book in high school where we had to like learn how do you listen actively? How do you encourage? And I definitely feel like the first couple episodes I was so terrified of having my first ever guest, even if it was my best friend, that we just spent three hours re-recording because we could not get through anything. And I did the exact same thing you're saying. Uh, she said something brilliant and I just said, okay, great, next. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. I I listen back to early episodes and feel the same way. And in fact, it's it was it was probably the first ten recordings I did. We, we never mm -hmm. launched, so really, that just shows you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a curve that you go through, and it's an it's a not it's not a struggle to listen to yourself. It's actually an opportunity to actually mm -hmm. listen to yourself and how you interact because it's an opportunity to improve. As well as learn how many times you say the word um and like <laughs> in a sentence. <laughs> So true. Yes, yeah, so true. That's funny. But I'm also really interested in kind of your human-centric design, just because I've heard you speak about it and this idea of place. And I know you're more interested, you said you're more interested in people now instead of place, but I would just love to learn more about it. It's such a fascinating subject and you're the expert, so we would love to hear it. Sure. Let's, let's go there. You know, with, with human-centered design, I think there's some things that are just understood by the very mm -hmm. nature of its name. Um, but if you think about all the factors that tug us when we design budget, footprint, branding, technology, uh, mm -hmm. flexibility, all, all these things, they affect our priorities. And mm -hmm. when you let those constraints in too early mm -hmm. and you don't start with this basic understanding of what's best for people, I think it can really damage an outcome. I, I, there's times in our industry that we've mm -hmm. done that. Like we, if I look at kind of 2010 coming out of the recession, um, that 2010 through 2013 run, there was so much focus on footprint, mm -hmm. on um, space utilization, Utilization. And we, you know, that was when we launched benching. I, mm -hmm. I mean, to me, that was a betrayal of human centered design, uh, you know, straight benching. Now benching works in some scenarios, but to, to just say, we're just going to put a sea of benches in a space. And then this is going to, you know, this is human centered design was, it was a total mistake. And I think what we did was we retrofitted a human centered story mm -hmm. to, to make it sound good you know, collaboration. We said, oh, you know, you take down everything, it will support collaboration. Uh, it did let in a lot of sunlight. Okay. That's, that's a good thing uh, that was human centered in nature uh, as it relates to benching. But in general, I think uh, what we didn't do was account for all the different kinds of people that are in a space mm -hmm. and all the different kinds of needs that they have. Uh, mm -hmm. So I do think that one of the, the core tenets of human-centered design is, is understanding that uh, the world is full of different people and, and, Rather than designing for the mean, you know, the average, mm -hmm. you need to design for the variety, uh, for, for the bell curve and, um, rather than design for the center of the bell curve. And I think that's a, that's a process and an understanding that we've gone through as an industry, really, mm -hmm. even more lately, you know, we've peanut butter spread our spaces for too long and we needed to, you know, we needed to be okay with an office that wasn't precious and perfect, but instead mm -hmm. was more reflective of the, of the variety of people that are in it. So I would love to touch back on, I feel like you kind of threw out a couple buzzwords out there, I guess is what we call them now, like collaboration and things like that. So would you say that in your experience from what you're talking about, like early on, it was more about the buzzwords and less about the peanut butter? I really love that expression. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
I'm yeah. really distracted with that. Yeah, I think we were still understanding all the dynamics of human-centered design, just like we were still understanding all the dynamics of well-being, right? Mm-hmm. Just think about that word and how much broader of an understanding we have of that word today than we did 10 years ago. Well-being was really, you know, sit to stand desks. <laughs> and, you know, and there were things like biophilia and lighting that came into there, but there's a whole emotional side to it um, mm-hmm. and, and mental health that we've become so much more aware of as an industry, as, you know, as a society. And so mm-hmm. I think um, we've all grown. And so that's all improved our practice of human-centered design. It became more well-rounded and more understood. And that'll probably continue to happen. I think data and research has had a major impact on human-centered design and understanding what's possible and how space affects people. And so more than more than ever before, I feel like the the profession of interior design has has a place of importance. Okay. And when you say like data and research, what would that look like from your perspective as an interior design? Because as an architect in landscape is my background, so I'm not as familiar with what you guys would consider good research. And you're the first interior design based person to be on my show. So I'm so excited for that. Cool. Uh, so would you mind just kind of like, you know, what would that what would good research look like and what would really bad research look like? You know, I think uh the research doesn't always have to have a direct tie to space, okay. but simply, you know, we've, we have a better understanding now of the impact of light on our sleep patterns. Okay. We have a better understanding of the impact of uh, nature, not even, I mean, literally like even a fake plant is, is good for you, right? Uh, nature's ability to impact our stress levels, our mm-hmm. creativity levels, which are really creativity and stress are tied together. We're not creative when we're stressed, despite what people think. And, uh, you know, so, so like those are areas of research that don't, that are not about design, but impact mm-hmm. design. And I think that that's happening all over too. We're understanding um, neurodiversity at a, mm-hmm. a, at a greater level and how different brains work and how certain brains need high levels of stimulation mm-hmm. to perform at their best. And other people need very secluded spaces to perform at their best. I mean, if I asked you to describe a, a normal person, it would be impossible to do, right? You couldn't do it. So mm-hmm. I think those understanding, the understanding of people and and how they work. Again, it's it's not a research on space, but it's research that will impact how we design space. So now we're designing spaces that account for all those things. Okay. And when you're talking about pulling in nature, is that kind of what you meant by biophilia earlier on? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, the ability to bring um, the influences of the outside world into the interior space. And sometimes it can be as simple as literally plant life, uh, mm-hmm. and that's heavily impactful, or, or sunlight, or, but it can also even just be how we use color and texture and patterns to reflect, you know, to, to evoke that same feeling. Okay. And as a biologist, we have a very different definition of biophilia. So. Well, I would love to hear uh, a more succinct and probably more educated definition. No, it's more, it's more just like for me, it, when the first time I was researching it, I heard biophilia and I was like, oh, nature loving or bio loving. And then I was focused more on like bio- biological organisms. And I think um, there's somewhere there is a biology professor of mine crying themselves to sleep and they <laughs> don't even know why. They're just like, I, I failed her as a person. <laughs> no, I uh, I think, you know, and I, I think that actually there are probably, there are words I think that our industry and phrases that our industry uses um, in different ways than the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And I would bet bio Biophilia is one of them. And, you know, we also interchange sometimes in the wrong way, biophilia and biomimicry, 
right? That's mm-hmm. another confusion that we make sometimes. Uh, but yeah, I think it's uh, maybe it's just more simply said, bring bringing the out the influence of the outside world to the inside world, and that's it. You know, we yep. don't need to name it. No, I love the name. Like I absolutely loved it. I was I was reading it. And I was like, oh man, this is great terms. I love it. It's 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 very succinct. I feel like I, I enjoy the play of words, especially in conversations. And I love. I mean, I'm probably a buzzword like biggest uh, supporter, not on purpose, but I accidentally use those like synergy <laughs> unironically, which I should. But <laughs> here we are. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I've heard you uh, call out a few puns uh, on oh, your yes. uh, on your episodes before. So you've got the you've got the word bug. It's a very bad habit. I like to hear though. People will write in and tell me all the words they hear all the puns so it's kind of like a nice game easter egg hunt i guess i love it <laughs> at its root core um human-centric design sounds like it's pretty much common sense like you're saying you're bringing nature it's focused on wellness and you said well-being and conscious and deliberate design and intervention i feel like though it's only talked about pretty brief how do you see it being pulled in more because i would love to see it more mainstream and everyday conversation yeah yeah i think um i think there are ways we can think about or just kind of priorities that we can Mm-hmm. bring into our design practices and, and our work. I mean, very basic one that we're stealing this from the medical profession. First, do no harm, you know, mm-hmm. like that, just saying that out loud thinks, okay, you know, like, well, now we understand that there are things that we can do in design decisions that we can make mm-hmm. with products we choose, um, with how we deal with light and things that, that can actually have a harmful effect on people. So understanding that I think is, you know, it is really huge educating yourself on, um, air quality, on toxins, things like that. Um, I think deep, deep listening is another mm-hmm. priority where we can try to make sure that human-centered design is is accounting for again all all types of people and not mm-hmm. the average person or the quote unquote average person. Um, here's an exploration of of kind of thinking differently about space through a human-centered lens. I was listening mm-hmm. to. Um, a speaker. I was at Workspaces in Palm Springs recently. Rex Miller, who's a friend of mine, was on stage and he was talking about, he's not, he's like an author and consultant mm-hmm. and, and kind of a, I would call him like a ethnographic scientist. I'm not sure even, you know, like here I am butchering words again. Oh my gosh, you're best no. to hate me. Um, but, but anyway, so Rex, Rex was like, um, he's talking about heart attacks. Mm-hmm. He said, there are more heart attacks on Mondays than any other day um, mm-hmm. in, in the week. And, and at least in, the, in like the last two decades. Mm-hmm. And what he, what he says it's tied to is stress. It's mm-hmm. work-related stress. Mm-hmm. And what he said is, you know, the opposite of stress is how you feel. Do you have a dog? Sorry, I'm I, interrupting myself. No, I do. He's do? somewhere around here. Okay. So if I asked you to think about your dog... And if Mm -hmm. you're listening, actually like do it, you know, like close your eyes, think about your dog. That feeling that you have when you're next to your dog Mm -hmm. is the feeling of serotonin going into your brain. Mm -hmm. And the way Rex described it was that that is the opposite of of stress. That is when you are your most healthiest. That Mm -hmm. is when you are your safest, um, your most creative and intellectual. Mm -hmm. And he said, what if you could arrive at a workspace? And that was the feeling you had, the feeling of when you're sitting next to your dog. I was like, oh my God, like that is so, that is so good. Like what a different idea of how to think about workspace because for so long you would arrive at a place Mm -hmm. and felt tense. It maybe, it maybe visually, it didn't look safe, um, so it didn't feel safe. It probably didn't sound soothing. The sounds mm-hmm. of phones and beeping and 
whatever, you know what I mean? Like all the aspects about it, we're not in that, we're not uh, serving this idea of how do we create a safer space? So that was interesting to me. So I love those sorts of explorations into human-centered design. I think there's a challenge though. I, I'm actually going to toss something out that flies a little bit in the face of human-centered design. Okay. And maybe Hollywood, you can come up with a better word since you're a word person here. <laughs> oh, probably not. Uh, we It needs, I think human-centered design needs a new word. And, okay. and the reason is if we're if we're so it's a little too self-centered it's a little too selfish because mm -hmm. we're at a point in time on our planet where if we continue to put the needs of the human in front of the needs of the planet mm -hmm. um we could be in trouble very soon and i think it would be easy to say well if it's good for the planet it's good for people right it would be easy to say that that feels like a cop-out to be honestly because i i actually think we're at a point where humans the humans here are going to have to make sacrifices so that generations that we will never see can live better. And so it's like human-centered design for the humans that don't even exist yet. That's I'm cons that's kind of what I'm thinking about. Because if, if I talk about human-centered design, a lot of it's also about experience, right? You know, delivering a fantastic experience for a person. Experience also usually includes convenience, right? You don't want people to be inconvenienced. And so human-centered design can be all about creating like a very special, great experience that has everything you need right there. But convenience also often comes at the cost of the environment. Yeah. So I think that's the struggle I'm having. To make sure I fully understand what you're saying. So it sounds like you think that we need to kind of split between generational and human and kind of blend them together, kind of the individual and the generation as a whole and tie that into the earth. That sounds like a pretty tall order of fixing everything, you know? <laughs> it's a super tall order. I think that's what we're faced with. I mean, I, I think if we just, if we only, if we only focused on our needs, mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm concerned that we're heading down, we're heading down the wrong path. And, okay. and um, I, I would love to hear, I would love to hear arguments for and against it because I I'm struggling with it in my brain. I just know that we can't continue to to live and do things in the ways that we're doing them and in the pace that we're doing them for forever. I mean, we just can't, right? I mean, the planet will suffer and everyone will suffer. Maybe we won't because, you know, we have another 80 years or whatever, you know, yeah. you know, the planet will suffer. So that's my, my concern is, you know, and I can't imagine that it would not come at an inconvenience. Like it is some, you know, like life will have to get more inconvenient for us to, for us to heal the planet. That's my feeling at least. Well, it's very profound to think about, especially with that idea of inconvenience at the I mean, when you were saying that, it was kind of a couple of thoughts kept popping up of it's hard to spell an idea as good when you have to temporarily inconvenient the immediate person. And I feel like that inconvenient step to the immediate reaction is what that's that's the major obstacle with everything, isn't it? Like you have nailed it. Yeah, that's it. it it's it's hard to sell something as a multi-step or to like take a step back and slow down or you might suffer a little bit, but it's not, it's hard to put suffering in perspective, I guess, even though it's not suffering, but the world is suffering, the environment's suffering. I feel like we can all global climbing, climate, you know, global warming's a problem. The earth is suffering. How do, can we not just deal with a little bit of a problem ourselves? Just maybe not as many Starbucks. Can't believe I said that out loud. <laughs> gonna... But that's it, right? Like, I mean, I can hit a button and get anything I want in two days. Right. Come on. I mean, there's no way that that, I mean, it's a beautiful design. It's a human-centered mm -hmm. process by all means. I mean, how easy has that become? But 
it's led to proliferation of stuff and mm -hmm. lord knows the the carbon footprint of pulling things off like that I, I i don't know i just feel like there is a tension between human-centered design and doing what's right for the planet and that tension needs a new name and kind mm -hmm. of a new and there's you know what maybe not maybe that name exists there's someone out there like come on like i've been writing articles on this for years like how do you not know this right that's probably out there and you know maybe my head's in the sand but uh yeah like uh you know we'll see i mean i really hope i hope somebody's out there being like i already have this written down 12-step <laughs> problem solved and ready to go but how would you i guess how would you hypothetically save time how would you say that not save time save the world to save the world how would you bridge this gap um because i feel like it would have to come in multiple multiple steps maybe that's just me spitballing ideas oh yeah yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a um, not just a design problem. It's an everybody problem and an everything mm -hmm. problem. And probably starts with education, um, mm -hmm. policy, voting. You know, I mean, it's as deep rooted as all the systems that we live in. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. it's it's all of that. So somebody somebody needs it down and just go through list by list, I feel like. Or maybe that's my approach. Just take a list and okay, what are the engineers gonna do to fix it? What are these people gonna do to fix it? What are the you know yeah. I don't culturally? I don't... How do we find define success? Culturally, mm -hmm. how do we define happiness? All all these things like you know, like it might go as deep as that. <laughs> It probably will by the end of it, but you know, it's it's crazy to think about the events that have shaped our lives. I feel like because you think that they're huge, massive, and sometimes they're just tiny little things, like the invention of being able to click a button in the grand scheme of life and get your stuff in two days. That that doesn't seem huge, but it is, I guess, or at least for me, it doesn't seem like as it's very simple. It's in my computer screen. That's it. That's all I have to look at. I click my button and I'm done. But yeah. you know, yeah. And it, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, you know, I have a friend, John Strassner. He's mm -hmm. the, uh, the chief sustainability officer at ASID. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, you're going to have to be okay with being a hypocrite. And you're mm -hmm. going to have to be okay with speaking out, even though you don't know the answers. And I love how he gives people permission because at the end of the day, we're all, we're all kind of in that space, you know, like I'm, I'm learning so much. I'm learning a lot from John actually. And, and, and Verda. So together, John and Verda Alexander, they host a podcast called Break Some Dishes. Mm -hmm. And so I follow them and I, I learn about sustainability, but then they also kind of give you the permission to understand, you know, like you can't look, I, I'm using these things, you know, that I'm saying are like, wow, they must come at a cost. But that's, that's the, it's, you're better off talking about it and being a hypocrite than just pretending like these things don't exist. No, that's, that's very true. I mean, that's it's such a weird concept. Like, like, I feel like we cringe away from the phrase hypocritical, um, hypocritical. Wow. I could actually say that in a sense, I swear. Um, we cringe away from it and we're like afraid of it, but I don't know. I, it's so, I, like I said, I love words and I love wordplay. So if you throw an extra word at me, I'm like, yes, let's adapt it. Let's use it. Let's go. <laughs> Lean into it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we, we do cringe away from being called a hypocrite. Uh, but in in this case, it's like, I'd rather be called one than be called ignorant, yeah. you know? So, oh well. <laughs> but, but we're, uh, you know, it's, it's big big stuff to solve and uh we're you know hopefully making strides i you know i can't say that you or i will figure it out but uh i trust i trust you know maybe that's the opti optimist in me i i trust that uh humans are creative i i believe in the generations that are coming up and the priorities and, and uh, the way they see the world and i have a lot of faith i i would i would also have a lot of faith i feel like they're more they're smarter than i am my little goddaughter i swear <laughs> 
she she showed me how much smarter and how much greater they're going to be in the future than anything I could do right now or did at two years old. I was not using an iPod and finding kitten videos at two. So <laughs> I know. And I think that, I mean, I, I hope we create a more creative generation. I think we'll, we'll be forced to. I, and I believe creativity is going to be how we solve our problems. I mean, it's going to be creativity. If we all just try to change our behaviors, mm-hmm. um, I don't think that will get us there, but creativity will. And so that's, um, that's the, I think the, the thing that I'm most interested in seeing fostered in that next generation. Um, and, and, and honestly, and beyond, I mean, I, I would love to see us transition our workplaces to be more creative, uh, or, or more creative centric, mm-hmm. um, our schools, our reward systems, you know, how do we better foster creativity? That's a, that's a subject I love to explore, um, with guests and, and that sort of thing. So how would you see creativity starting to be fostered in the workplace? How do you bring that in? I guess, even as an interior designer? Well, um, I'll start you. Okay. I'll start you on the foot of my kid's bed, okay. okay, as they're going to sleep. Now, this was five years ago, you know, they don't want me to tell them bedtime stories anymore. <laughs> they're past that, but they would want a bedtime story, okay? Mm-hmm. And I would sit on the bed and I would come up with the craziest stuff, okay? Mm-hmm. And they would giggle, it was fun, right? I would share the wildest, dumbest stories. Um, and I and I found myself getting better at it, right? Mm-hmm. And I started really thinking about creativity. I started really thinking about why. Why, when I'm sitting at the edge of that bed, am I more creative than when I'm in my workplace, which demands creativity from me, right? Mm-hmm. And there's several reasons. Number one, judgment. When I'm with my kids at the end of that bed, there is no advantage to playing it safe. But when you're surrounded by your coworkers, most people feel they fear judgment and that gets in the way of creativity in a big way. So I I feel like judgment is is the enemy of creativity. Mm -hmm. And so our workplaces can do more, not just the people in them, but the places themselves can do more to create judgment-free spaces. I mean, if you, so if if you take a boardroom, your typical, you know, United States office boardroom, and you put that side by side with the colorful bedroom and the kid's bed that I'm sitting on, and you tell me where you'd be more creative, that's a pretty easy answer. So understanding what we need from people now more than anything, which is really creativity because artificial intelligence is placing a lot of the day-to-day decisions that we're making. That's a different looking workplace. It just is. You know, if you want a workplace that will evoke creativity that will lower judgment, Mm -hmm. that's a different place. Another, you know, another thing is um, laughter. Like we, we should be talking more about laughter in the workplace. It's healthy. And when people laugh, there's, there's a sense of openness that happens where people are more willing to share ideas. If you go a whole week at work and there's no laughter, that's a pretty bad sign of your culture. So like knowing that laughter matters. Okay. Well, what does that mean about design? I mean, surely that will impact the physical place Mm -hmm. and how we think about um, space and kind of color and human interaction. So I I think that we have a little bit of like rebranding to do of the workplace and what the office is. Oh my gosh, can I get into a, like a little sidebar here about rebranding yeah, of the office? Okay. I love that. Yeah, go for it. Okay, okay. I was having this conversation with a colleague of mine, Lydia Gorman, or Lydia Moya, sorry, Lydia Moya. <laughs> we compared the office to a side of broccoli when you're a kid, okay? Because... <laughs> 
When you're a kid, uh, so many kids grow up and they hate broccoli. And the reason is, is because their parents made them eat it, right? And they didn't have a choice. They made them eat it every, you know, every time they sat, you know, every time they served it. And the office has become that kind of side of broccoli. For years, people were just forced to go into the office. Mm-hmm. And and now, like, all of a sudden, they have a choice. Well, if they had a choice all along, like, broccoli is great. I love broccoli. It's good mm-hmm. for you. I think the office is great. I think the office is good for you. But if if it was a choice all along, then mm-hmm. maybe we'd feel differently about it. And there wouldn't be this war cry that you're hearing now of like people not wanting to go to an office. Just the well, I, well, even to extend that metaphor, it's all about how you prepare it. Like you love oh, your broccoli in certain so ways. Good. So good. Certain ways you don't like it in others. I mean, I hated like boiled broccoli and if you could find an office just like that. I imagine you could walk in and be like, this is my boiled broccoli office. We're not coming in here. That's so true. That's so true. The office was a boiled side of broccoli. Yes. (laughs) That's so good. Yeah. All right. That was a fun little tangent. I don't even know how we got there. We talked about rebranding. Yeah. The office needs a rebrand. It does. I guess. So would you say that being able to work from home would be the equivalent of being in your kid's kid's bedroom at night then in this situation? Or is it just pulling your kid's bedroom into your office is more where you're trying to go with this? It's understanding. Yeah. It's understanding all those factors. Um, The factor that that's a judgment-free space. Mm -hmm. That's a space where I feel safe. I Mm -hmm. feel like myself. Uh, It feels human. You know, those things are the things that can support a more creative mindset. So that can be your home. It can also be the right office space, you know, the well-prepared, a well-prepared office space. And even, even let's, let's go a a layer deeper too. The time of day matters. It doesn't have to matter, but it mattered because it's the end of the day. All Mm -hmm. my emails are done. I don't have distractions, right? So, so I'm free to sort of think when you're in your workday, there's dings and emails and calendars and all these things. It's hard to get into that state of mind where you are your most creative. So I also think if you want to be creative in your workday, there's a discipline around kind of letting go of all the immediate distractions mm-hmm. and moving out of the kind of urgent but non-important world and into the not so urgent but very important world of creativity. That's very, prof- I've, I haven't heard it phrased that way. That's very profound way to say it. It's a very interesting, I feel like, conversation as a whole. Like you definitely seem very focused on, or maybe you're not intending to, but I definitely hear a lot of the humans are also helping to set that setting a lot. Like when you're talking about even just creativity, I know that as designers, we're like, okay, we can control our fabrics. And as you were mentioning the light and things, and you're pulling your kid's bed into it. I guess interested in hearing more is that you also seem to focus on like the way that we're approaching it as physical people and talking about it is key. Totally. Uh, it does seem that seems to be kind of like an underlying, well, maybe shift for you or from what you were talking about when I was listening to your first episodes versus what you're saying more now. Or Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, and that's probably where I am most comfortable. I feel like I, I probably understand people better than I understand space. But at the same time, you know, the connection between the two are so huge. Yeah. And, and creativity has just been a subject that I love to explore personally and so uh, I didn't really plan to take the conversation in that direction, but it just sort of unfolded that way. And I'm glad you gave me the the rope to do so. No, I, I absolutely have loved this conversation. It's been it's a really interesting facet. I feel like we don't get a chance to talk to you about designers, like especially not if you could think of um, creativity as a program. I feel like we separated mm. out in design, or at least from my experience, we, we don't 
program creativity or we do through like certain ways, but isn't that kind of limiting in itself if you're programming versus providing opportunities? Huh, yeah. Like do those things uh, naturally have a tendency to clash? Is that what you're saying? Like programming and creativity in general? Well, I feel like more that what I'm saying is more that like sometimes if you, I guess what you were saying earlier, if you program it too hard, choke it too hard, you no longer can be creative. You no longer have that good conversation or that oh, spark. So I'm yeah. going way back to the beginning of our conversation about <laughs> yeah, you, you need to give yourself the space to be in that mindset and this and, and i think it i think it's worth understanding creativity at a more human and a more scientific level the same way that an athlete should understand their muscles right mm -hmm. if you're a runner and you take your running seriously you probably understand you know like the, the the how you build muscle what muscles are important right how your muscles work on your legs how they feel you know like there's that would just make sense, right? Well, if, mm -hmm. you know, like our sport as office workers, <laughs> I mean, like very big part of that is creativity, right? And and like, if that's, that is our muscle that we're using and we should take the time to understand it better. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've had a joy doing that. I mean, like there's some great, I'll leave you with one more creativity tip. Um, there was, uh, there's something called stepping stones that I just love. If you, so if you run a studio or you're in a studio with colleagues, I like to always talk about stepping stones. I mean, how many times have you heard people say, oh, I, I know this is a terrible idea. All right. I'm, I'm you know what? I'm not just, I'm just not going to share it. Or they're just going to say, you know, this is a terrible idea, but uh, you know, here you go. Like, instead of saying it's a terrible idea, it's good to share your silly ideas because a stepping stone is when you share a silly idea that someone else then catches a spark. And it's a stepping mm -hmm. stone to their big idea, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so now what I, do, what I do is encourage our team to actually use the word stepping stone. Like, hey, here's a stepping stone. And then mm -hmm. you share kind of a wild, silly idea. And it's like a, it's a good way for people to feel safe about sharing ideas because so many of the wildest ideas end up just dying in our heads, you know, and we forget them and we never share them. And it could have inspired something great in someone else. Mm -hmm. And so that's, uh, that's a little creativity tip that I love to share. Oh, that's a great tip. Thank you. Um, yeah. I really point. I definitely do the same thing where I say, oh, no, can't share that. It's not fully formed there. So it seems like it'd also be a great way to just foster positive encouragement in like an office, especially with your team. Have you seen like a good, like more willingness to share and collaborate when now that you've introduced the stepping stone idea? Yeah, I feel like I feel like I have. And in addition, I would start most of the meetings where I was host with a bad joke. I would just tell like a silly dad joke or something. You would love it, Hollywood. Like you would totally be down for it, like a <laughs> pun or something. Right. And uh, and it changed completely changes the, the vibe of the meeting, you know, mm -hmm. and like, you can literally like, so when I do that, you can literally see people's postures change, you know, like they're leaving their inbox, they're coming into a room, they're tense. And then we lead with a joke and like their faces change, their postures change, and their body is going to inform the way their mind thinks, like mm -hmm. we are connected so strongly and, uh, and it can help create different kind of meeting. Well, it seems to almost make people more present from the way you're describing it, like the difference between focusing and focusing and dialogue. I know I did hand gestures. That's what my dad always does when I would be distracted as a kid. He'd be like, focus, focus. <laughs> so I subconsciously do I love that. it. But, but that idea of like being present versus like you're actually there, you're contributing, you get more from the experience. So that, that's really good to hear. That's a good tip. I feel like anybody listening should like go steal that. Make sure you like TM Doug before you <laughs> put it in the office. TM, that's funny. So Hollywood, what would be your piece of advice that you would leave me with? Let's see. My piece of advice kind of in the same vein. I feel like 
like we don't use design charrette as much as we could. So I feel like the most, maybe this is from a very naive, just leaving studio point of view, but I feel like the best projects were the ones where I showed up to a room with a piece of paper, red pens, and said, absolutely destroy it. Tell me everything that could possibly be wrong and throw out your wildest crazy ideas. And that was always my best projects. That was always the best interactions. And it broke the ice because you weren't putting anybody down, but you were acknowledging that things could be better. So I feel like if we can take that into work as a whole, like don't be afraid to call an engineer and be like, I don't understand, but I would love to. Can we like sit down and talk about it? I feel like that was a very uneloquent way to rephrase everything you said this entire episode of <laughs> communication is key and don't be afraid to reach out. I, I love I love the advice there. You know, we, we, we let go of that a little bit in the professional world. You know, I don't think we probably do enough of that. I don't know if sometimes ego gets in the way or, or whatever it is, um, but there's certainly an opportunity to do more. Yeah, I would love a like giant worldwide document that was just everybody wrote their best tips on. And we just sent it across <laughs> the entire world and just let everybody write on it. And I imagine it would be amazing if we could do that level of like design it one day. I, I absolutely love that. That is so cool. You know, that that's actually one of the reasons I love podcasts in general, mm-hmm. not podcasting, but podcasts mm-hmm. and listening is, you know, we only get to experience our own mind. Like we go through life and we only have access to one brain for an hour on a podcast because you're not, you're not in the conversation, but you're in it, if that makes sense. You're, you're not having it, but you're in it. You actually get to live through someone else's brain for an hour. At least that's what it feels like to me. And that's what I love about podcasts. And so far, being a host has kind of given me that that weekly access that I love. No, it's wonderful to like get outside of yourself in a way, because you don't know what you don't know until you don't know it. Um, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> but it, it's so interesting. I do love podcasts. I feel like that's the best podcast where you like suddenly walk away and go, wait, no, I was never living in the 1920s at this time. But you're like completely convinced you were there. You can taste it. You can feel it. You can yeah. pull in that memory. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It just, it, it really adds layers to who you are. It really does. So I do have to ask because I know that we're running into the end of our show, but if you could give advice to any undergrad student, graduate student, anybody starting their career, what would you like to leave them with and wrap up? All right. Well, I've, I've, I've covered the communication. We've talked about creativity. Here's a bit of advice that I'll layer into that. Don't underestimate the value of your friendship and your validation. What I have learned in interviewing people is even the most, uh, you know, like I'll talk to the CEO of a, you know, 10,000 person organization or the CIO of JLL, right? And at the end, most, almost every guest will ask the same thing, which was, you know, how did I do? Was I do a good job? You know, everybody is after the same thing. Everyone wants validation. And so if you're in a networking opportunity, if you feel like you don't belong or you, or that you're not enough, like to go up and tell somebody that might be more senior than you or something, Hey, good work, good job, or love what you did. That is, then you're, you're misjudging the, the value that you bring, because I have found that we're all seeking that everybody wants to be validated. And then once you understand that it becomes a little bit of a code, you know, like if you mm-hmm. can break that code and, and be that person that does that, you'll really stand out. Thank you. That's some great advice. I definitely feel like that's something that we haven't covered before that my, I always like to give, you know, just a little tidbit. Well, you said you listen. So, you know, I like to give a little tidbit to all my designers as someone who just graduated, but where can everybody find both you and your podcast and just even your firm in general? Awesome. Uh, so the firm is at is OFS. So OFS.com. Mm-hmm. That part's easy to find. Imagine a place, the podcast 
podcast is really going to be anywhere you listen to podcasts. And I would say the best way to connect with me is through LinkedIn. You know, I'm on I'm on all the social channels, but that's where I'm going to do most of my sharing and talk to new people. And then I'll have an opportunity to talk about this conversation, which will be fun. Yeah, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. But I've absolutely loved having you on the show. Um, thank you so much. If you ever want to do it again, please do. I feel like we had so much we could have talked about and so much we did. I really enjoyed the journey. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, Hollywood. Thank you. Yeah, I I, I definitely didn't know where I was going to take this. <laughs> Sorry if I rambled, but I, uh, no. I really love the opportunity to, to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of Architecture Coffee and Ink. Check out the blog as always for the transcript, show notes, and sources. You may have noticed there's actually two episodes being released today, this one and the Tunnels Part 2, so make sure you go and check out that episode. Everything will be updated and uploaded onto the blog before Sunday morning with all the transcript for the episodes that I'm releasing this week and all of the past ones. Please rate, review, and subscribe if you want to see more content. seriously helps. But thank you all for sharing in 2022 and I am so excited to move forward into 2023. You can find me on Instagram at Architecture Coffee and Ink or hit up my regular Insta if you really like iPhone photography. Check the show out at architecturecoffeeandink.com that's A-N-D this time dot com. Email the show at architecturecoffeeandink at gmail.com and I'm excited to meet with all my designers, dreamers, and DIY enthusiasts next time. But in the meantime, may your coffee mugs be full and your inkwells never run dry. <laughs>